Good evening, everyone. It's great to see all of you here this evening. I'm Judy Cooper, the coordinator of public programs. And I wanted to uh, just tell you about a couple of programs that are coming up next month that are not in our calendar. They're on our website. Um, first, on Wednesday, Tuesday, excuse me, Tuesday, April 2nd, uh, Susan Schneider will be here to talk about her book, The Science of Consequences. And on Thursday, April 25th, Michael Clare is here, and his book is The Race for What's Left, The Global Scramble for the World's Last Resources. And there are flyers out on the table um, about both of those programs. Um, also, in our calendar on the front page is uh, an announcement for a program with Robin Quivers from um, the Howard Stern Show. And that has been canceled, and it will be rescheduled for the fall. So. We are very delighted here at the Pratt Library this evening to um, be working with Planned Parenthood of Maryland and um, having a partnership and, and their support uh, for this event this evening and certainly um, in a, uh, a book and a topic that um, is in the news, maybe a little bit um, superseded by uh, gay marriage right now, but, <laughs> but uh, don't worry. Um, <laughs> Women's rights and reproductive rights will be back in the news um, soon. Um, so we're very happy, I'm very happy to welcome to the podium uh, Jenny Black, who is the president and CEO of Planned Parenthood of Maryland, and she's going to introduce Sarah Erdreich. Jenny? Thanks. Uh, this is a wonderful opportunity to further this very important discussion that is going on right now about Roe. As you know, it's turning 40, did turn 40 years old this year. And uh, it's, it's an important time to pause and think about what the struggle was in the beginning, where we are now, and what the future holds. So it's a real delight to, um, to introduce Sarah, who has written a book about the future of, of Roe. And, um, and I think that one of the reasons that this conversation is so important to have right now is that there has never been a more poignant intersection between the politics of this issue and the cultural tension, right? So we have a political moment when kind of the three social, socially, the, the defining issues of our time right now, gay marriage, immigration, and abortion. We're, we're, we're having incredible gains on at least two of those, the third being abortion. And I, I, I am concerned about the future of Roe personally from a perspective that um, I feel that this is the, the one issue where the fight remains as heated and poignant and passionate today as it was 40 years ago. So that makes this a, a really critical time to have this conversation. So um, having someone like Sarah to step into the mix and um, bring her sense of wit, um, her insight into um, the real lives of, of the people that this issue impacts, which quite candidly is most of us. Um, so it, it's my pleasure to introduce Sarah tonight. She. Um, has a, a rich experience with the issue. She worked for quite some time with the National Abortion Federation. Um, she has a very, I think, um, aligned issue uh, or an aligned viewpoint with what does choice mean 
So I think we're going to hear a little bit more about that. But in her words, she says that choice is trusting yourself and not telling others that they shouldn't trust their own decisions and feelings. And so that promise of Roe is what's at stake right now, that the, the promise that Roe delivered that every woman, regardless of her zip code, should have the opportunity, the access, and the means to determine her own fate. And that kind of determination of her own destiny is inextricably tied to her access to reproductive freedom. So with that, I pause a moment and I introduce you very happily to Sarah Erdrich. Thank you, Jenny, for that lovely introduction, and thank you all for being here. Um, never been to the Pratt Library before, so this is a real thrill to, to finally have a chance to come up. As Jenny mentioned, I, um, I have worked at the National Abortion Federation. I actually started there almost exactly five years ago. Before I started working at NAF on their hotline, I thought I knew a lot about abortion. I was always interested in women's issues. I grew up very pro-choice in a very pro-choice family. I read a lot about court cases like Planned Parenthood v. Casey, Gonzalez v. Carhartt. And in college and graduate school, I also knew, had a number of friends and acquaintances who, for various reasons, had chosen to have abortions. So I thought going into working at NAF that I knew a lot about what it meant to be a woman getting an abortion in this country in the 21st century. But every day that I worked on the hotline there, I learned something new and really, to me, shocking about what it meant to try and get an abortion in this country. On the hotline, I was speaking with women and their partners from all over the country about where the clinic closest to them might be. We would brainstorm ways about how they could pay for the abortion, because many of the women that we talked to didn't have the extra income for this kind of medical expense. But what always really stuck with me more than anything else was the women that I would speak with who would say, you're the first person I've told I'm pregnant. You're the first person who I've said I'm having an abortion. Because they couldn't, they were afraid to tell their own families, their own partners, what they were going through for fear that they would be judged or that they would be shamed. And that said so much to me about the stigma that our society, that abortion is still held in, in our society. How incredibly, how abortion for such a common medical procedure for these women was treated as the least common thing they could do. In early 2009, there was an article that appeared in the New York Times style section. It was titled, Where to Pass the Torch? And it looked at clinic directors and abortion providers activists, and counselors who were approaching retirement age. So a lot of the focus of this article was, where's the next generation of pro-choice activists and doctors and attorneys going to come from? Is there another generation? I found this article very interesting, and not surprisingly, it incited a lot of conversation uh, in the hotline and in other, uh, among my friends. And I realized, listening to all this talk about it, that I was surrounded by this next generation, by all these activists in their 20s and 30s that wanted to be doctors, wanted to open their own clinics, become attorneys, or just keep working in this field that they were devoting so much time and energy to. 
So that's really what led me, those two experiences, working at NAF and reading this article, were really what led me to write this book. And for the focus of the book, I decided I wanted to talk to those of us who had grown up with legal abortion. I'm in that generation. I was born in 1977. So like many of my peers, I had the luxury of taking abortion for granted. And it is a luxury. But I wanted to know why, for those of us that did have this, that did take it for granted, why we wanted to enter a field that was so stigmatized, that is so threatened and so dangerous in so many parts of this country. So in, a, in doing a number, dozens of interviews, a lot of research about the medical and legal history of abortion provision, I also, almost by accident, started to wonder and see how abortion became so stigmatized to the point where these women that I talked to were scared to tell anyone what they were doing. I'm a pop culture fanatic from years and years. I'll watch almost anything on TV. The more mindless, the better. So to me, it was particularly interesting to see how our pop culture deals with abortion or does not deal with abortion. Looking at all the TVs, TV shows and movies that deal with unplanned pregnancies or pregnancies that are not occurring at perhaps the most desirable time, abortion is hardly ever mentioned in our popular culture. And that's a reflection of how it's hardly ever mentioned in our society, in public. And you think about the words that are used when we talk about abortion in our mainstream media and progressive media, even among those of us who work in this field. The number of people that use the term partial birth abortion, even though no such procedure exists. Or the way that pro-life is always equated with pro-choice, even though that's really not a, a, prop, a correct equation. They don't mean opposite sides of the same idea. And these issues were echoed by a number of the people that I interviewed from all age ranges. But a lot of other concerns were brought up as well. One question that I asked every person I interviewed is, do you think Roe will still remain law? Some people said no. Some people said they think the Supreme Court will, at some point, overturn it. The majority of those that said they think it will be overturned were from the older generation, so those who had entered the field after Roe was decided. A larger percentage of the people I talked to, though, said they think Roe will stand. They don't think the Supreme Court will mess with that, no matter the composition of the, of the court itself. Their concerns, they said, and this was echoed time after time, was that Roe, in the words of one attorney I spoke with, is already dying the death of a thousand cuts. And that was very true when I was doing these interviews, which primarily were in the summer of 2009, after Dr. George Tiller was assassinated. And I think that's even more true today, two days after North Dakota has become the first state to ban abortions once a fetal heartbeat can be detected, which, since as far as last I heard, they hadn't specified how that heartbeat must be detected, means it could be as early as six weeks into a pregnancy. So the threats to Roe that we're seeing, the threats to abortion rights, to reproductive rights, are really happening at the state level. It states all across the country, regardless of who the governor is or what the percentage of Democrats or Republicans is in the state houses. And that's a huge concern, and that's a really big issue that a lot of activists, a lot of providers and attorneys are grappling with when we look at the future of Roe. Because while there's a lot of important work being done on the federal level, in many ways, Roe is something that is more at risk in our own communities, in our own families, our own states, our own cities.
And one thing that a lot of activists are talking about doing, at least talking about to me about doing, and that I found really inspiring, is that instead of waiting for something like North Dakota to happen, instead of waiting for another case like Gonzalez v. Carhartt, they're talking about abortion in their own lives, not waiting for a crisis, not waiting for the pro-choice movement to have to play defense against these increasingly creative and brazen assaults. But they're talking, they're making the effort to say to their pe people that they care about, people in their lives, here's what's important about reproductive rights. Here's how it affects my life. Here's how do you think it affects yours? And this was something I never really thought about doing before until one of these interviews that I did, as I said, in the summer of 2009. It was with a doctor who is one of the last abortion providers in New Hampshire. He's been the subject of pickets. His children's school has been the subject of protests. And he himself has been the subject of a documentary about his work. His name is Wayne Goldner. And when I talked to him, he didn't mince any words about what he thought was wrong with both the pro-choice movement and the country at large when it comes to abortion. And he asked me, you know, you're educated, you're knowledgeable about this. D does your doctor, does your OBGYN perform abortions? And I was really embarrassed. I said, I have no idea. I never thought to ask. His point, as he went on to explain to me, was that if women are not asking their doctors, why don't you do this common medical procedure, then they should be. He said, you know, what would men do if the doctor they went to said, oh, I don't provide prostate exams. You have to drive 50 miles, pay out of pocket to have that done. He said men would be outraged. And he said doctors should be performing abortions, but women should also be asking. So thoroughly, thoroughly chastened, the next time I saw my doctor, I said to him, do you provide abortions? I didn't say it that easily, though. Even though I, talked about, I was talking about abortion all day, every day, I felt so uncomfortable having to bring it up to my doctor. I think I made a disclaimer like, I'm not pregnant, I'm not asking for any real reason, and even if I was pregnant, I'd probably want to stay that way, but I just, I need to know, do you do abortions? And he surprised me. He said, no, I don't know how. He was trained at Georgetown University, which is a Jesuit school, so they don't teach the procedure. But, he said, there are doctors in this practice that do provide abortions. So if you ever do find yourself in that situation, we can help you. And I felt so relieved. It's still not a procedure that I personally have needed, but I find it comforting to know that if it ever happens, if that's a decision that I feel is best for myself and for my family, I know what my options are and I know I have a doctor that I can trust. So I know firsthand how difficult it can be to talk about reproductive rights. I've had conversations after that that kind of opened the floodgates and I've had conversations with everyone from my sister to complete strangers on planes about abortion and reproductive rights. And not all these conversations are easy. And not all these conversations end with minds being changed. But they've all been polite and nuanced. And they all hint at a deeper level of understanding and of wanting to understand than we often see from how abortion is discussed in our media, by our politicians, where it's all rhetoric and stereotypes and assumptions. Probably one of the most difficult conversations I've had, even more difficult than the one with my doctor, was when I was talking, when my mother-in-law decided to talk to me about abortion. She's very Catholic. 
Um, she's one of kind of a classic large Catholic family from Pittsburgh. She's also very intelligent, very kind. And so I think she, so she really was curious when she sat down and she asked me, what do you think about women who use abortion as birth control? And internally, I was rolling my eyes and, you know, kind of quelching my, my natural inclination, my natural response, which would not have been very polite. But instead, I said to her, you know, I don't think women do use this as birth control. And what followed was a very nuts and bolts conversation about why women choose abortion. Because a lot of the reasons were ones that for her were very relevant, were very relatable. About being able to determine the size of your family, about doing what's best, you know, with your fi what financial state are you in? Can you afford to have another child? Would it be too much of an emotional strain, a physical strain? All these different reasons that she had never really thought about, but that really resonated with her life and with her own experiences. And that really taught me the power of being able to meet people where they are at when we talk about abortion care and reproductive rights. I know I personally, since I am so immersed in this world, I sometimes forget or I wish that everyone was kind of a, you know, on the same, coming from the same, same background, same knowledge base. That's what I'm used to. But I found it really educational and really rewarding to be reminded that meeting people where they are at is not just good for the conversation itself, but it was good for me. It really challenged me to think about this in a different way than I'm used to. Experiences like that were echoed by so many of the activists that I interviewed for this book, so many of the providers and the attorneys I spoke with. The idea that having these conversations, not dumbing ourselves down, not pandering or not, you know, compromising, but having conversations about what people care about and connecting it to the larger issues of reproductive rights, of reproductive justice, is all part of a continuum. And the more connections we can make, the more relevant and personal it becomes for people to see how reproductive rights affect them, even if they're men, even if they never plan on having an abortion, even if they never want an abortion. Being able to make the choices affects all of us. And being able to make these connections strengthens support for reproductive rights as a whole. It makes people less eager to judge. It really put, it puts, even if you can't put a literal face and a name to those that have abortions, it puts that metaphorical face and name to it. It's been interesting this week watching um, what's the Supreme Court, the gay marriage arguments that have been unfolding the past couple of days. I live in D.C., so I've gotten to literally watch it. Um, which has been really great. And I think it's interesting to think about just 20 years ago, even less than that, the Defense of Marriage Act was signed in 1996. LGBT issues were such a hot button in our society. And they still are. There are many parts of our society that will never be 100% accepting or tolerant of LGBT issues. But you look at how much has changed over the past 20 years. When I was driving up here uh, this afternoon, I was listening to NPR, and they had a story about, um, I think the title of the story was actually Gays in the Courtroom, and it was about how LGBT issues have been represented in movies over history. And a clip was played from the movie Philadelphia, which I'm old enough that I remember watching that in the theater when I was in high school. 
And I remember how revolutionary that movie was in 1994 and how controversial it was, that it was protested in some theaters in this country, the idea that there would be a sympathetic portrayal of a gay man who had AIDS. And now when you look at Philadelphia, it's a period piece. Our society has moved so far, so fast since the mid-90s. I think it's really instructive for the pro-choice movement to look at that. I mentioned earlier about pop culture and how abortion is represented. And I think that there are great parallels in particular to look at how LGBT issues have gained a lot of visibility and nuance and diversity from their representations in our larger culture. Maybe our culture should not be drawing as much as it does from television and movies. But the fact is that it does. And seeing all these representations helps normalize something. And having these conversations on a less visible but more personal level helps normalize these issues as well. Obviously, there's more to it as to why LGBT issues have gained such acceptance over the past 20 years. But I think that is a part of it. The idea that this has become normalized, that people are able to say, oh yeah, my father's friend is gay, or my teacher is a lesbian who's been with her partner for 20 years. It, it makes it more resonant when you have a personal stake in, in a big politicized issue. It makes it more relevant. And, and frankly, it makes people care more. Perhaps not all the time, perhaps it makes them care not in a pro-choice way, makes them maybe more going the opposite way, but it makes them think. And that's so important to be able to have these conversations and to keep looking for some sort of common ground so we can get to a point where politicians will decide that they have better things to do with their time than try and outlaw abortion after six weeks or tell women that even if they receive it, uh, their fetus has a genetic defect that will mean almost certain death, that they cannot terminate that pregnancy in the desire that they feel is most dignified and most humane. Having these conversations, making pro-choice issues, contraception, abortion, reproductive rights, more personal and relevant means that we might have fewer anti-choice candidates on our city council. We might have fewer anti-choice representatives in our state houses or on the federal level. We might have a society that as a whole can move toward a more tolerant place where they can see beyond the headlines, where like with LGBT issues, they're able to, it's become more normalized, more accepted. Again, abortion will never be 100% accepted in our society, and that's okay. Disagreement is a mark of a healthy democracy, and it's something that should be encouraged. But what should not be tolerated is the idea that people will try and actively restrict others from making the decisions that are best for themselves and their families. So that's, I think, one very dynamic and creative direction that I see the pro-choice movement moving, going in, in the future. At 40 years after Roe, the fact that this is still such a hot-button topic has shown us, particularly those of us, I think, that have grown up with legal abortion, that we cannot legislate this away. No one's mind has ever been changed by something that Samuel Alito or Harry Blackman has written. Devoid of the context, these laws are just words on paper. We need the context. We need to put these issues in our real lives, in our families, our communities, our towns, to really see how they affect people, how they are public health issues, socioeconomic issues, education issues, as much as anything else. 
And perhaps by doing that, 40 years from now, we'll be in a society where our sons and our daughters, our grandchildren and our godchildren, will be able to say, be part of society that says there's nothing wrong with, having, with being pro-choice. There's nothing wrong with trusting women. And there's nothing wrong with having an abortion. Thank you, and I welcome any questions and comments from the audience. We're taping this so we can podcast it from our website. So um, we'd, we'd like to hear your questions. Oh, you're also shy tonight. David, good. Especially since I get a microphone. <laughs> Thanks so much, Sarah. I uh, really enjoyed your, your comparison between the LGBT civil rights movement, particularly where it's at now, and the conversation we're having around abortion rights. I just wonder um, if you have a comment on sort of the, the climate post this last election. And I, and I bring that up because I think we saw part of the groundswell and, and um, movement we're seeing on LGBT issues was because we had here in Maryland and other states a very public referendum on those issues and for the first time saw a majority of Americans going out and showing support on LGBT issues. I thought we also had a similar showing in terms of um, women's rights and women's health care and uh, abortion rights in terms of getting the Todd Akins of the world out of the uh, uh, picture in this last election. But I don't see the needle moving in response in the same way. I wonder if you had a thought about that. That's a really good point, um, that we did see a lot of support for, for reproductive I feel like we saw a lot of support for a certain kind of reproductive rights as a reaction to Todd Akin and Joe Walsh, et cetera. Because I, you know, in, in the very high profile cases, um, it was support for abortion in specific circumstances. It was about women who have been raped or incest. It was, it was kind of the same exceptions that we see in the Hyde Amendment that are kind of in every law that goes to restrict abortion access. There are always these you know, health of the woman, rape, incest exemptions. And I'm really glad that those exemptions exist, but I think that the downside of those is that they help, they help keep abortion as something that should only happen in certain cases. They keep it, they keep it, um, I can think of what the opposite of normalized is, you know, but they keep it in like this very rare, it's only okay if. And I think that may be why we didn't see a huge groundswell because unlike in, I think it was 2008 was when the last South Dakota personhood amendment was over the last made the last big election cycle where there was a personhood ballot I think we saw more of a, a groundswell that we actually really didn't see with Mississippi because it wasn't a big election year when their amendment was defeated so I think by having the issue be something so tightly tied to abortion in certain circumstances instead of women's rights in general that maybe uh, explained part of of the reaction that we saw I'm thinking about my own reason for being pro-choice and I'm curious for some feedback on it. I can remember as a young child growing up in a pretty conservative community, but thinking to myself, I wouldn't want to be born if I wasn't wanted. And now I'm thinking, there's some problem with that reasoning. It's like empathy for a potential child. And I think part of it is, and, and a child that wouldn't exist if there were an abortion. So. That's sort of problematic on one side. But on the other side, I think pro what I'm dealing with is the problem of how to love 
the person who is born in a place where abortion isn't available, even though the mother might have chosen that, mm -hmm. and how to balance those concerns in my thinking about why I'm pro-choice. Mm -hmm. I'm curious for your feedback. I think you raised a really interesting point, the idea of that there are I think there are in a lot of situations the parents or parent or parents would prefer to not have a child, but they don't really have an option for many reasons, religion or age or you know economics. I think, and I'm, I apologize if this doesn't answer your question directly, but you've actually reminded me of something that I think is an important aspect of this, that I think one thing that we have to consider with that issue is the idea of, of strengthening the social supports around those kinds of families. Because I think a lot of parents, and this is purely anecdotal, so I'm not drawing on any studies, but I think a lot of parents, you know, even if their child is not born in the most ideal circumstances, still love their children. And they're still glad that they have them, even if they wish the circumstances were different. So I wonder if maybe a way to address that is to focus energy on strengthening the supports that families have, of, of all families have. You know, in their in their communities, educational, um, job, so health, uh, um, you know, all these different <laughs> aspects of being able to have a healthy family is kind of maybe one way to address that. So that even if abortion is not accessible, at least the child can be raised in the best situation possible. Hello. There's been. 50 million abortions in the last 40 years mm -hmm. in this country. I watched your interview on NPR over the weekend, mm. and a few people brought up the idea of education. We don't have enough education in this country, and that's why we're having all these abortions. It seems to me, it seems to me we have more than an education problem in this country. We have a lot of women in this country effectively being raped by men they know. Is that addressed in your book? Well, my book doesn't deal with sexual assault explicitly, so I don't really talk about rape. Um, no. I think it's still on. Well, thank you so much for this discussion. And I, I'm sitting here thinking about um, my own, also like this gentleman, thinking about my own reasons for com becoming pro-choice. And there's many aspects to it. But one of the things that I think that I've, I've, I've kind of felt over the years is that I'm very, very clear that I've always, uh, that I'm, I'm pro-choice. Since, since very early age, I was, my mother was involved in Planned Parenthood when I was a child. So, the thing is, when I think about it, I also have a, a significant ambivalence about whether I would be able to have an abortion myself. And I, I think that, that the, that's part of the crux of the issue of how hard it is as a woman to discuss this. Because so many of us who are pro-choice, I, I personally don't have children, but I would like to have had children or would like you know, to be part of the lives of children. And I think the ambivalence of, you know, being pro-choice and having those thoughts about yourself, it's hard, even when you're dealing with somebody who's anti-choice, to, to really take a hard stance. Mm -hmm. And it, it's not like um, LGBT issues where it, it's, it's not about, 
you know, it's about that person's clear cho own choice, but it's it's different because it's such a personal issue and such a personal choice that they make. So I just would like to hear your thoughts about that. Thank you. Well, I think it is a very personal issue, and it's interesting. A good uh, good friend of mine who I worked with at NAF has actually raised some to me some of the same concerns that you just did. That she, per, you know, she very much politically believes in choice. I mean, she worked at NAF, and she's still very involved in the pro-choice movement. But she said, you know, personally, I don't know if I could ever have an abortion because I just, I just don't know if that would be the right decision for me. And I think that that's, I don't think that those are mutually exclusive thoughts. You know, I think that actually they kind of just illuminate how important it is that this be a personal decision. Um, that is not something that we're a decision that we're making for someone else, because it is a very difficult decision, and it's something that a lot of people hold very sacred the idea of when and whether to have children. So I think that being pro-choice doesn't really is exactly what it says, that you're in support of people being able to make this decision. Even if you personally wouldn't agree with it or wouldn't make the same decision they would, just honoring the fact that they can do that I think is very important. Hi, I just want to ask you about, um, you spoke of Carhartt and Gearhartt, I think it was Gearhart a few years ago, also about the current uh, Jennifer Morbelli's death and the similarities between those two instances and Carhartt's um, situation and what the future is for, for him and for... I'm not sure then the Jennifer... Jennifer Morbelli? Could you, I'm not, I don't recognize the name, could you? Um, Germantown. Oh, I didn't realize the name had been made public. Yeah. Okay. Uh, this is the woman who died following a procedure at the Germantown Clinic? Okay. Well, I mean, my understanding from the last I heard about that, and please correct me if there's been more news released, was that the death was the result of a, it was not result, uh, the result of the abortion, it was the result of something, um, it was a very rare cause of pregnancy-related death, or pregnancy-related issue, is that, is that still the, the latest news or the latest results? The coroner said it was the result of the abortion. The coroner did. Okay. What I'd heard from the medical examiner was that it was something, it was a a rare complication with a very long name who's escaping me that would, it sounded like it would have happened regardless. Um, I mean, I, so I'm not really, I'm sorry, I'm not really sure what your question is. Oh, Carhartt v. Gonzalez, that was uh, the Supreme Court, that wasn't an actual death involved. That was a Supreme Court case about a specific, uh, specific type of abortion procedure, um, uh, intact dilation and extraction. That's usually performed in the later stages of pregnancy. Um, to my knowledge, that was not the, the kind of procedure done with what happened in Germantown, but I don't really know a lot of details of that case. One of the causes of uh, her death, and by the way, she was 29 years old. She was 33 weeks pregnant. She was a school teacher from Westchester County, New York. And one of the causes of her death is that he perforated the uterus and the, uh, the fluids, the amniotic fluids, got into her, her bloodstream. That was one of the causes of her death. But my question is this. Since obviously abortion becomes more and more uh, dangerous to the woman as the pregnancy is advanced, um, do you support or are you against laws that were passed in states like Nebraska that basically outlaw late trimester abortions. In other words, do you see any, um, 
would you support any laws that restrict abortions in, in any way, such as the Nebraska law and other similar laws that have been passed in other states that limit uh, or eliminate the possibility of late trimester abortions? And the rationale for that is two things. Number one, the danger, and number two, that the baby at that point in pregnancy can sense pain. I actually don't support late-term abortion bans um, because I think it should, again, it, it is the decision of the woman that's affected to decide whether or not she wants to have that abortion, and that should be her choice. I think that statistically, when you look at the reasons that women would choose to have an abortion that late in pregnancy, when you take into account the, t the massive expense of it, the amount of distance that many women would have to travel to access that service, it's clear that many, if not all women, who have late-term abortions are doing so because of a grave threat to their health or because the fetus has been diagnosed with abnormalities that are incompatible with life. So I think that these are done for very specific reasons that I would not want to presume to judge and say you shouldn't have this option if you think that this is best and you're informed of the risks, I think that, in, that making an informed decision should be the right of the woman to do. As to fetal pain, I know the American College of Obstetricians and Gynecologists has not actually taken a stance as to if fetal pain exists. They don't feel like there have been enough studies to determine if this actually is a phenomenon or not. Uh, likewise, a study that came out of the United Kingdom several years ago conclusive, pretty conclusively showed that Fetal pain, if it does exist, and they couldn't say that for sure, is at a later point in pregnancy than what a lot of we, what a lot of state legislators in this country have been using. So I'm not even sure that fetal pain is a consideration, since it's not medically proven that should be a factor right now. Just a follow-up question: Really, doesn't it come down to when does human life begin? And if it could be determined, let's say human life begins at six weeks or whatever. Would you be against abortion after that point? You know, I think when human life begins is as much a religious question as anything else. I think if you ask a dozen people, you'll get a dozen different answers because it's so influenced by your own life experiences, your own religious experiences, that if there were to be someone, you know, proven scientifically this is when life begins, independent life, which again, even when you say life, you almost have to qualify it. What do you mean by life? So no, I don't think that one person's opinion on when life begins should be the law for everyone to have to follow, no. Hello and thank you. Um, you mentioned earlier that uh, you didn't know whether your doctor provided ab abortions and it made me think about um, just women's health issues generally and um, places where there might be a lack of um, perhaps open discussion about issues that um, impact women's health. So for example, work that I've done with sexual assault survivors, mm -hmm. and just from my own personal experience of going to doctors as a woman, um, areas that may not be touched on, for example, abortions or um, a, a woman's history of sexual assault. Um, and it also made me think of um, last year with Sandra Fluck, who was mm -hmm. testifying about, um, I believe, ovarian cancer um, and, and birth control and that mm -hmm. sort of thing. I was wondering what you thought maybe might be the next steps you're talking about moving forward and what's the next step for um, 
moving forward with the, the women's health and women's rights movement, perhaps generally in the national discourse, ways to move forward to um, further education and discourse about those common issues that do affect um, women's health and perhaps that people don't necessarily identify as um, common issues because you were saying common medical procedure with abortions and if you had any thoughts about um, steps that could be moved in that direction. It's interesting um, talking about doctors and um, having these difficult conversations. You mentioned sexual assault issues. I think one one step would be to make abortion instruction more common in medical schools. I think it's in, and, and residency programs because I and the reason I think this is connected to sexual assault is in studies that have been done of residents that have had to learn abortion provision, even among those who said that they don't ever plan on becoming providers, they've said that they've benefited not just from learning the technical skills, because in a first trimester abortion, at least, it's very similar to a miscarriage, so the skills are useful, but also being able to talk to their patients about difficult subjects. So I think that if medical education could move towards anything that makes it more patient-focused, uh, which I know is a really tall order given the state of medical education, but having abortion training be put back in the classroom and in the residency field, I think to help normalize, again, these difficult conversations, I think that would be a, just one positive step that could be done. Um, you also mentioned, so men would be kind of outraged if prostate cancer wasn't provided. Mm -hmm. But for example, breast cancer is something that nationally is very supported and talked about openly. So I, I guess um, I wondered what if you had any thoughts on ways to move so that the kind of national um, conversation, and you did mention popular culture and also talking about it openly in your own private lives, but ways to sort of move in a direction that um, the national conversation um, becomes more open and, and, and maybe um, um, more nuanced with some of these uh, common health issues for women that maybe are not discussed openly now. Well, I think again, and, and I apologize if I sound like a broken record, but I think it is, it really does go back to having these one-on-one -on -one conversations. I think that's how a lot of issues that were once taboo have become less so. Even breast cancer, you know, I think in definitely my grandmother's generation was not something that you talked about out loud. It was just considered rude or, you know, impolite to do that. So I think that really the more that these things are talked about, with you know some, something that's as, as intimate as one-on-one, -on -one, like with you know a family member or a romantic partner, or, you know any someone in your life, to something larger. I know it sounds kind of old-fashioned, but you know we've seen that letters to the editor really work. That that using any sort of avenue to express your support can actually be very effective. I was really pleasantly surprised. Um, as I said, I'm, I'm a pop culture junkie, so I, in addition to watching almost anything on TV, I also read a whole bunch of magazines. And in the, this issue, this month's issue of Cosmopolitan, there's a great one-page article about the morning after pill. I was honestly really pleasantly surprised. So, and that's an example of somewhere where you wouldn't see that kind of art, we wouldn't assume that Cosmo would talk about the morning after pill. So showing support when things like that occur, or asking of the media that we consume why aren't you talking about this? Why don't you run a story about this? I think just kind of 
the areas of our life where we that we really care about seeing this representation, demanding that representation, I think really does make a difference. Thank you. Okay, let's uh, give Sarah another round of applause and thank her.